0: We're going to continue our study uh, Ecclesiastes. We find ourselves in chapter 9 this morning, verses 1 through 10. Ecclesiastes 9, verses 1 through 10. Verse 1, But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it's love or hate, man does not know, both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an, ev- this is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished. And forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love, all the days of your vain life, That he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. This ends the reading of God's word. Uh, The the title of our series, Ecclesiastes, is The Futility of Life Without Christ. That is, without a saving relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ, His one and only Son, life is indeed futile, it's useless, it's pointless, it is, as Koalaf says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? It's the introduction to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Remember the preacher's quest uh, for satisfaction in this life um, has been recounted a number of times. He has attempted everything from philosophy to materialism to hedonism and uh, the search for satisfaction, peace, and contentment dwelling under the sun, that is, from a man-centered horizontal perspective of life results in one of the most shocking statements in all of Ecclesiastes, and that is chapter 2, verse 17, where he said, so I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity, and striving after wind. Now, that statement is quite a contrast to what we find here in chapter 9, Uh, Specifically in verses uh, 7 through 10, after we look at some more um, dreary points of death, um, we move from hating life to actually celebrating it, that we ought to celebrate life. And that's where we're headed this morning. Uh, Last time, um, our attention was held uh, by the theme of injustice, another subject that's beyond our control, Uh, the writer of Hebrews, or uh, the writer of... uh, Ecclesiastes Ecclesiastes has been pointing out that there are certain things that are beyond our control um, that regardless of how hard we try, we we have no power to change them. And he talks about, you know, when, when the wicked seem to prosper, the righteous at the same time are condemned, where the wicked are praised, the righteous are penalized, and as the wicked are rewarded, the righteous are reprimanded. Those are certain um, evils beyond our control as well. He talked about injustice. You know, when justice is turned um, on its head in society, when kings rule unjustly, when the enemies of God seem to prosper, when civil superiors call evil good and good evil, he encourages us with wisdom. He reminds us what wisdom is. He reminds us where wisdom is found. And then building upon that argument, that is the injustices of life and uh, circumstances beyond our control, um, he talks about uh, the inevitability of death. Everyone will stand, ultimately, before the Creator. Death is the the great equalizer of all men. And then he goes on to tell us how we, the hearers of his word, which is God's word, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, how we are to live in, in sight or in response to that sobering reality. That is, you're going to die. You're going to taste death. So as the preacher king here wrestled with the mysterious ways of God, uh, the momentary uh, injustices of life, his faith, we read, um, has prevailed. And that's affirmed by his trust um, in the sovereignty of God. And we see it right there in verse 1. Notice, but all this I said, all this I laid to heart, rather, I examined it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. So there you have a clear declaration of sovereignty and the victory of faith. Victory of faith and overcoming all of these injustices, all of these mysteries, is to understand that, it's all in the hand of God. He's sovereign over it all. So in context to the many injustices of life, uh, the preacher leaves God's people in his hands. And then in verse 1b, notice, whether it's love or hate, man does not know both are before him. So never losing his grip on the sovereignty of God, the preacher knows our fate is in God's hand. Yet, however, although everything is in the hand of God, the question is, here, is God's hand for us or against us? Context, suffering of life, mysteries of life, and so on. And here he says, whether it's the love of God or the hate of God, man doesn't know. So love has to do with acceptance, hate has to do with rejection, Uh, An example would be, you know, uh, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. Jacob I have accepted, Esau I have rejected. Now again, Coleth uh, is writing before the cross. So in the midst of this struggle to understand um, sovereign God and what he's doing um, in this life by way of his providence from from a finite, limited, fixed position, uh, what he says here um, regarding trying to discern the mind of God and the suffering of man, um, it's difficult to know whether or not or how the circumstances um, that we presently experience are the result of his favor or his rejection, that is, of his love or his hate. And the point is this, that outward circumstances, that is ultimately death to all, doesn't always tell the truth of the matter. Not all suffering is a response to God's punishment or justice. Um, God alone, in other words, knows the reasoning for our sufferings. So he's leaving that in the hand of God. All these injustices of life are in the sovereign hand of God, worked out by way of his providence, Uh, whether it's due to his love or his hate. We'll leave it to God. Because man cannot know. And, again, with the cross and Christ's coming, um, such love in suffering is shown most greatly in the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Favor is shown most greatly in the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He, The son of his love... came to earth and suffered, unlike any one of us will ever suffer. And we, who are in Christ, are in the Son of His love. So ultimately, for us, this side of the cross, we know that all things work together for the good of those who are in Christ. Though it's a mystery to us, perhaps, at the time. But, you know, from his point of view, and in his time, he, he was trusting in God's sovereignty, God's providence, whether it was a result of God's uh, justice, or his love, whatever the case, it's in God's hand. That's his point. Now, verses 2 and 3 repeat. Notice the same fate. That is, death comes to all. Jesus said, while men live, God sends rain on the just and the unjust. He makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. So, no matter who we are, how well we live, Our time on earth will end in death. That's Coleth's point. You know, there's a bumper sticker I read about. I didn't see the bumper sticker, but I read about it. Somebody was quoting it. It says this, Eat well, stay fit, and die anyway. (laughs) Man's, In other words, man's greatest enemy, death, captures all. All men will die, unless you're here when Christ comes back, and you're caught up. So, comparing life to death, the, the preacher now uh, repeats this very memorable proverb. Notice verse 4 But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. Uh, in the ancient Near East, um, dogs were vile creatures, dogs were disgusting creatures, um, they were scavenger, you know, street roaming flea bags. Filthy and repulsive. It's kind of like we would think of rats. Sorry, dog lovers. So think about that vile creature, a flea-bitten bag of bones, compared to a lion, right? King of the animal world. Okay, and in this time is the royal insignia of the house of David. The lion of the tribe of Judah. He says, his point is that a living, vile dog is better even than a dead lion. That's his point. In other words, living is better than dying. So a dog here isn't viewed as your nice little lap dog pet. A dog that's alive, scavenger mutt, can respond in a way that's impossible for a mighty, the mighty king of the jungle. Because he's dead. Living, he says, is better than dying. And then verses 5 through 6 provide us uh, more detail here um, about the dead. The living are ignorant. They have no more reward. They have no idea as to what's happening on earth. Because once they die, they stand before the judgment of God. The dead don't have knowledge anymore of God's judgment. What they have is the reality of it. So earthly knowledge, all opportunity, in other words, has passed. All opportunity and the knowledge we have down here, knowing that we will stand before our Creator, is gone. And for the dead, it's now a reality. Judgment for all eternity is dependent upon what we do here. Once we're dead... The opportunity is gone. And then all knowledge of what's going on down here is gone. So the living, we have hope. We have the opportunity to fear God. We have the opportunity to trust God by faith. For the dead, it's past forever. It's gone. And notice even the wicked, although they may have received honor while they were here, have no more reward. Soon to be forgotten. All of their earthly emotions and passions are extinguished. Love, hate, envy, they're all gone. They have no more portion here. So what he's doing is he's pointing out the reality of death. Death comes to all. Um, If you feel the injustices of life, fret not, because everyone will die. And when you're dead, there's no more opportunity here. So, against the gloomy backdrop here of death, uh, the teacher now moves on to give advice for living. This is great stuff. This is actually praise for living life. So, in light of, if I can use that, in light of the shadow of death, he gives praise for living life now. Okay, so notice what he says in verse 7. Go. Go. Eat your bread in joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already proved what you do. Okay, ultimately all men die because of sin, amen? The consequences of sin is death. But now, since you're alive, enjoy your life while you exist down here. Death, he says, actually then gives meaning to life. Death gives meaning to life. Death surrounds us. We all experience death. Loved ones die. Neighbors die. Friends die. So he says, live life. Enjoy life. Enjoy everything that God has given you. That's his remedy, if you remember. That's Koalath's remedy for the vexing mysteries of life. He's already said, look, we're not going to unravel the mysteries of this life. We're not going to be able to mend all of the injustices of life. So what does he commend? Last time? I think it was last time or the time before. He commends joy. Look back at chapter 8, verse 15. And I commend joy. For man has no good thing under the sun, but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. So with All that we've observed thus far, basically, let God take care of the universe. He's sovereign. Let him carry out his will providentially. All the world happenings, they're in his hands. You take care of your life. You take care of your household as you live life under the sun. Now, again, that recurring phrase, under the sun, isn't always used in the context Of a worldview, Most times it is. But it's not always used like that. Because back in chapter 8. And right here in chapter 9 verse 9. When he talks about under the sun there. All he's referring to. Is the sphere of man's physical existence. So as you live life under the sun. Here on earth. I commend joy. He says in chapter 8 verse 15. Uh, This this is where men work, this is where men live, this is where men breathe, and this is where they play. So it's not always in the context of a worldview. This is also where men and women experience problems. So since you're going to die, and while you live, verse 7, go. Notice, go. Go conveys a sense of urgency. It's actually an imperative. It's a command to go eat your bread and drink your wine with joyful hearts. That means a heartfelt joy. It's a wake-up call, basically, to get going. Don't give in, don't give up, go. So it's the idea of walking out life. It's a manner of living. So he, he charges us to this duty to, to go. So in other words, rather than focusing on the hurts... Rather than focusing on the failures and frustrations, refusing to enjoy life, get up and go and enjoy what God blesses you with. That's the idea. Sidney gray Dennis, on his commentary, says this, quote, In other words, there's no time to waste. Stop complaining. Stop nursing your anger. Stop brooding about your problems. Get over your anxiety and go. That's good. Jesus provided many times bread for the masses. Jesus, at a wedding, turned water not only to wine, but really good wine. For what? The festivity of the people gathered there together to celebrate life, and in that context, marriage. So in other words, God, as we read all the Scripture, is pleased when we enjoy His provisions of eating and drinking and working as we'll see in a little while, enjoy them as the blessings of God in the midst of the shadow of death and things that are beyond our control. So God, he says, has richly given us, as we look at all the scripture, he's richly given us all things to enjoy. Now, this isn't a materialistic perspective. It's a spiritual perspective. Look at Psalm 104.13. From your lofty abode, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. Sweet, isn't it? So, in other words, in in the days that are good, Because we've already learned in chapter 3 there's a season for what? Everything. Mourning, suffering, dancing, rejoicing, and so on. In the days that are good, enjoy days of feasting. Enjoy days of celebration. He's not saying, go get drunk and do drugs. Right? After all, all things come from the earth, man. (laughs) You know? Like the stoners say. He's not saying throw off all restraint. He's not saying, you know, live it up because you only go around once in this big blue marble, man. No. He's saying God wants you to enjoy life while you're here. So eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. You don't have to eat, in other words, simply for sustenance sake. Enjoy it. Savor your food. Savor your drink. With joy. That is with enjoyment. He says, drink wine with a merry heart. Literally, drink it with a good mind. And that is an appreciative spirit. That's what he means. Yeah, wine. That's what he says. He says, slow down, eat it, drink it, thankfully, seize the moment, right? You're gonna die. So while you're here, enjoy it. God has given us sight, He's given us smell. He's given us taste, right? We have taste buds. Enjoy my creation. God created many kinds, of <clears throat> many kinds of grains, amen? Not just one. Many kinds of fruits, not just one. Vegetables, many. He could have given us some kind of pill. He didn't. He provides with abundance. So he says, eat and drink with joy. Next, verse 8, let your garments always be white and let not oil be lacking on your head. Now, white garments uh, worn in the ancient world were um, worn for um, festive occasions. These were the dress-up clothes of the day, if you will. It was a sign of brightness. It was a sign of of happiness. Um, Oil also was associated with with festive occasions, this is a richly scented um, ointment or perfume, which was a luxury in that day. So uh, the, the picture here is part of, part of getting ready for an occasion. Put on your best clothes. Make sure your head is always anointed with oil. It is to look good and smell good. This is what he says. Let your garments be white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. All this, again, is what he provides. And again, when life is good, enjoy it. There is a season for everything again. So God says this to the believer. Enjoy it. Take up. Rejoice in the giving of my hand. That's what he says. This is the life of faith that God has given to us. 1 Timothy 6. The faith God has given to us is to richly enjoy all things. New Testament. 1 Timothy 6. So seeing God's creative world here is good. He's filled it with good things. Those good things are to be enjoyed. You know, biblical Christianity, beloved, is not a denial of the physical and material world. Some people see them as the twin evils. The physical and the material. So some Christians, therefore, deal with the temptation of of overindulgence by denying the physical and material things altogether. That's where monasticism comes from. You know, running off, fleeing from the world, you know, to live in extreme privation. Thinking that it's a way to purify the soul. If I can just get away from the physical and the material world, I can purify my soul. And that's heresy. That is not God's word. Pleasure in this life is not evil. You know, God, you know who gave you your five senses? It wasn't the devil. It was God who created you with the five senses. Now, some Christians today, unfortunately, follow the teachings that the uh, Colossians were falling prey to. Asceticism. So Paul writes them, because they were giving themselves to this. Colossians 2.21, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. And he goes on to say this, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgences of the flesh. Why? Because sin is found where? On the inside. Jesus said it's not what you take in. It's not what you eat. It's not what you drink. It's what comes out of the heart. So an asceticism isn't going to fix the problem. Self denial. So they were teaching that true, spiritual, true spirituality was attained by renouncing and sacrificing altogether physical pleasure and personal desire. And some people, Christians, just simply refuse to enjoy the gifts that we're reading about. You know, never think that you know, true, truly spiritual Christians. Only eat, um, I don't know, leftover oatmeal for dinner or, you know, crackers and peanut butter or something. If you're truly spiritual, you only eat crackers or, you know, bland food. It's not true. Some Christians feel that they're especially spiritual because they don't have a TV. If you don't want to have a TV, that's great, but don't think that you're necessarily more spiritual because you don't have one. That's the danger of our day. Some You know, Christians don't listen to this, or they don't go there, they don't drink wine or whatever. They don't eat medium-rare porterhouse. It's okay if you don't, but it doesn't make you any more spiritual. To them, the blander, the better. Because the blander it is and the tasteless, the more tasteless it is, the more spiritual we are. That's not true. Amen? It's not true. Now, again, God is not saying, have a party and forget the poor. Scripture's clear, amen? Give generously to the church, give generously to the poor, and have a party. Celebrate life. Enjoy. Can I get a witness from the right and from the left? <laughs> Now unfortunately, wonderful, festive portions of scripture like this must be qualified to those for those who only listen with one ear and those who listen trying to manipulate scripture for the sake of their own purposes and own use. And that is that there is of course the deadly danger of pursuing pleasure purely for the sake of seeking pleasure. Right? Some people, Paul says in Philippians 3.19, live for food. They make, they make a God, he says, out of their belly. And their minds are set on earthly things. So that leads to, of course, like gluttony. There are those that are given to drunkenness and dissipation. We're going to talk about work. There's those who live to work. Philip Ryken writes, he says, quote, The pleasures that people pursue are usually good in themselves. The danger comes when they take the place of God. End quote. Another says that sin is not just the doing of bad things, but the making of good things into ultimate things. It is seeking to establish a sense of self by making something else more central to your significance, purpose, and happiness than your relationship to God. So that's the qualifier. Enjoy, he says, but for anyone who may be listening with one ear so as to justify a life of debauchery, take warning. It's pretty simple. Notice next, another enjoyment of life, and that's for those who are married. The preacher king continues uh, with the pleasures of life here and now in verse 9. He says, enjoy life with the wife whom you love. All the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. So when he talks about vain here in this context, um, he's not referring to something that's completely empty or pointless. He's referring to that which is fleeting, and that is life. It's moving along really fast. So enjoy your spouse. Enjoy. Be aware your days are numbered, he says. So instead of lamenting over the fact that you're going to die in your brief, allotted span of time, take every opportunity to rejoice and enjoy what God provides. And regarding your spouse, context here, your wife, delight in her. Don't take your spouse for granted. You know, among the most precious gifts the Lord has given us, it's a godly spouse, it's a blessing. So you don't want to take one another for granted. You know, you should have the little favorite things you do. Your little secrets, your little phrases. You know, my wife and I have this thing. If I'm not, a couple nights a week, a couple nights out of the week, I'm here late. So we have this little saying. I'm not going to tell you what it is, but it says, I'll meet you right here, whether it's the backyard or the front porch. I'll meet you in the morning, we say this. I'll meet you at, and then it's this specific time. And I can't tell you what that time is because that's our little secret. And it's a funny thing. So we all have those things. We should have that type of thing with our wife, with our husband. So life is short, he says. Um, Sometimes it's perplexing. It's mixed with toils, with uncertainties, with exhaustion. But it's also filled with joys. And don't miss the one that's right in front of you, he says, and that's your spouse. Enjoy your time together, he says. Fuel the fires of romantic love. That's one way to do it. Just read the Song of Solomon together. Or something. That's great. Uh, have your little inside jokes. We should have those with our spouse. My wife is a hard critic when it comes to my humor. And she gives me courtesy laughs now and again. But I really enjoy it when I can, when I can make her belly laugh. It's very rare. My friend actually calls my wife old poker face. <laughs> because, she's a hard, because we both have silly jokes that we do and she never really laughs at them. So she, he calls her poker face. The joy is that when you can make her laugh, if I can make her laugh joyfully without courtesy, then it makes my day. Now, all that said, it's understandable that that some of God's people have a very difficult marriage. Perhaps they're married to an unbeliever. And marriage is actually one of your greatest trials in life. Okay? God knows that. And He provides mercy for that. He provides grace for that. But... Speaking for the majority of Christians, the case should be that you enjoy your spouse. Amen? Enjoy your wife. Enjoy your husband. And uh, for most people who have children who are grown and gone, you really know how fleeting life is. Amen? You blink, and they're gone. It's amazing. My grandson is with us this week. I'm looking at him running around. It looks like my son when he was that age. I can't even believe my son has grown and has his own. I can't believe it. That's, how, that's what he's talking about. Life is fleeting. A good wife, a godly husband, is a gift of the Lord. Notice what Solomon says in Proverbs 19 house and wealth are inherited from fathers, but a prudent wife, a prudent wife is from the Lord. So our time here is short, Koaleth says, Enjoy it. All the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. So, life with all its hardships, he says, enjoy your food, enjoy your drink, enjoy festive occasions, enjoy your marriage, and then finally, the last point is um, diligence, the diligence that life requires. Verse 10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there's no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you're going. Okay, heaven's not on earth yet. Amen? It's not on earth yet. It will be one day. But our work, while we're here, it does matter to God. And he says, whatever it is you do, do it with all your might. And life will yield satisfaction to those who are diligent. Those who are diligent, there'll be a sense of satisfaction. The slothful, they're never satisfied. Lazy, never satisfied. So notice he says, whatever. okay, Whatever your hand. That is, whatever set before you, that which is assigned to you, At the moment, do it with all your strength. That's what he says. So whatever your hand finds, find means to arrive at something. It's probably better here to think of it as whatever God's providence sets before you in this moment of time, do it with all your strength. Do your best at what he sets before you. Whether it's good, whether it's bad, whether it's easy, whether it's difficult, desirable, undesirable, because not all work is desirable. Put all your strength into it, he says. So he calls us to do our best with our God-given ability, amen? For the glory of God. If you're a homemaker, homemakers, do it with all your strength. If you're a cook, if you're a carpenter, if you're a lawyer, a mechanic, or a minister, do your work. Whatever it is you put your hand to, do it with all your might. And it's for the glory of God. Another enjoyment of life. Every change diaper, ladies, a lot of moms here, every change diaper is an act of love. Amen, moms? An act of love. If you're a carpenter, every pounded nail is for the glory of God. You do a good job, not a half job. Every conversation at work is part of our calling as Christians to be and serve for the glory of God. It doesn't necessarily mean you're always preaching the gospel. It just means your conversations are glorifying to God, whatever we do. So doing a job well, it's not a capitalistic philosophy. It's the will of God. Do it well. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31, whether we eat, whether we drink, whatever we do, do all for the glory of God. Now, and you should know this by now, we do not believe in Scripture does not teach that you're more spiritual, that you're more godly, or you're more significant if you're a pastor, or a missionary, or a professional theologian. Those are great callings, but it doesn't make you any more spiritual than a mom changing diapers at home and taking care of her kids. Amen? Period. You just don't find it. I think some people who are in those positions perhaps think they are, And it's not true. Not true. God calls people in a variety of ways. And whatever it is, we're to do it, he says, with all our might. Cooking, cleaning, painting, planning, those are all professional calls in this life to be positioned for the glory of God. Notice what Paul says to Uh, The Colossians, again in chapter 3, says, Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work hardly as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. This is what we do and whatever we do, do. We serve the Lord at home. here, whatever your position is in life, we do it for the glory of God. So we can enjoy life. Uh, there's a very strong um, doctrine of diligent work found in the New Testament in First Thessalonians chapter three verses 6 through 13, which we don't have look, uh, time to look at. But in context to professing believers and the church, and people sponging off the church, that is people who are perfectly able to work and refuse to work, we're instructed not to care for them. If they're lazy and incompetent, don't care for them, because if you don't work, Paul says, you don't what? Eat. Matthew Henry said this, Harvest days are busy days, and we must make hay while the sun shines. Okay, you're going to die. There's no work or thought or knowledge of wisdom in Sheol to which you're going. Okay? Sheol here is not a denial of the afterlife. It, st- it simply stands for the realm of the dead. In the Old Testament it stands for the realm of the dead. The Bible speaks nothing of purgatory. Okay? So it's not purgatory. Wasted hours in this life we will stand accountable for. We will stand. So Sheol most often simply refers to the grave. That's where we're going. We're going to the grave. You're going to die. It's the common fate of all humanity. That's the preacher king's point. So he says, good and evil alike, all people, they're going to the grave. And once you're in the grave, you're unable to carry out everything that you knew and had knowledge of before death. Because it'll be over. You know, perhaps Jesus was paraphrasing verse 10 here when he said in John 9 to his disciples, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is what? Day. Night is coming when no one can work. And as long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. There's a lot going on there, but basically, all in all, it's the, you know, the same purpose with this verse is in mind. You can only do it while you're here. So do it well. Do it well. Work was instituted by God before the fall, and God called it all what? Good. It's very good. So it's very good reason to believe that work will be part of uh, the afterlife here in the new heaven and the new earth. Some, some form of work. And the only form of work that will cease is calling lost people to repent and believe in the gospel. So work is not a curse. Amen? Now, we, we work by the sweat of our brow. That's part of the curse. But work itself is not a curse. So he says, do it well. So now to conclude. Two minutes. All of the good things mentioned here in Ecclesiastes 9 of living life symbolize for us the gifts of God His grace in Jesus Christ. So think of this. He gives us our daily bread. Not only that, He's the bread of life. He gives us our daily bread. He refreshes our hearts with the cup and the bread, the communion table, which points us, again, the physical gospel, points us to His finished work on our behalf. The scripture says He's anointed our heads with the oil of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. We read that there's a place secured for you, all who are in Christ, and that is at the banquet of all banquets, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And it's a feast. And you'll be drinking wine there with the Lord, this great feast. The marriage supper of the Lamb. And what will you be wearing there? You'll be clothed in white garments, festive garments, purity, the bride of Christ, the marriage supper of the Lamb, bright and pure. So all that to say, until then, our time is short, our time is limited. Jesus has given us work to do, whatever your profession is, whether you're mother, father, spouse, enjoy your spouse, enjoy your home, enjoy your life, because you're going to die. Amen? And greater than that, you have eternal life, because you're in Christ. So while you're here, why not have fun? There's enough suffering. And again, there is a season for everything. But in the days that are good, let them be good. Don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow has enough trouble of its own, Jesus said. Amen? Psalm 118.24. Here's a good one to close with. And I have to remind myself of this all the time. Myself. As I'm preaching to myself, too. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice. And be glad in it. Amen.